the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Now, therefore, then, coming to Jesus in relationship with Him, and He saves us, now we want to obey the laws of God, not because they make us more righteous, but because they honor the Lord as we give obedience to His commands to honor Him through holy living. See, and the Pharisees had gotten the cart before the horse. They were like, no, 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 if we just obey all these rules, then we'll find favor with God. No, the truth is, you cannot find favor with God except through a relationship with the Messiah, And only then will you be saved. Now you can obey my laws. When we try to obey the laws of the Bible for the sake of being holy, we just can't. Well, you might be able to get by on your own strength for a little while. Eventually, you'll realize that you need the Lord. It's a cart before the horse situation. The religious leaders during the time of Jesus attempted to attain salvation through works. In reality, the opposite is true. Because we have salvation from Jesus, we are able to do work pleasing to the Lord. One without the other just won't work. Jesus is needed. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Now, I don't know if Jesus was raising his voice when he's saying this. I have to think that he's probably projecting a little bit, okay? I can't imagine he's sitting there saying, you know what, you, you go a great distance, travel over land and sea to get people, and then you get them saved, and you make them twice the son of hell as you are. I'm thinking we're probably seeing his veins a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I think we're seeing his veins just a little bit. Of course, it's all relative, right, whether Jesus was actually raising his voice or not. Every husband knows what I'm talking about. Amen? All the, all the guys in the house like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Because if your wife, has, you ever, has your wife ever said to you, why are you yelling? I'm not yelling. No, you're raising your voice. You're kind of using a tone I don't, I don't appreciate. Seriously? All right, let me show you the, the tone. All right, let me show you what a real yell is. Okay, how many guys have ever done that? Come on, let me just see your hands. All right, I've done it. I've done it. I have to admit. Terry said, you know what? You sound like you're projecting. Are you projecting? No, this is projecting, okay? So I don't know if Jesus was projecting. I don't know what his tone was. The Bible doesn't talk about tone here. But I have to believe he's fired up. Because when you look at the different things that he calls these people, he calls them right there sons of hell. He's going to call them in a little bit blind guides. He's going to call them in another uh, verse blind fools. Further down, blind men. Later on, verse 33, you snakes and you brood of vipers. 
okay? I don't think he's Jesus meek and mild. I think he's Jesus fired up. And when he's talking here, he's calling them sons of hell because he says, look, you go to great lengths to win converts, but then when you win them over, you impose upon them such heavy burden of the law that you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. You're not leading them on the right path. You're leading them down a path of destruction. You're not leading them towards a relationship with God. You're leading them towards a bunch of rules and regulations. The rules, the regulations, the laws of God were intended to shine upon a man's heart, a woman's heart, their desperate need for a savior. The law, Paul says, was put into effect to lead us to Christ. The problem Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day was they looked at the law and instead of the law convicting them and making them aware of their need for the Savior and then their eyes opening to see and embrace Jesus, they instead got self-righteous by simply obeying the law and saying, yeah, we can do this, we can do this. And Jesus says, no, you can't. In fact, you're a hypocrite thinking that you can And the very effect of the law, the intention of the effect of the law was having no effect upon their hearts because they were hypocritical, legalistic, and proud. And that's the intention still of the Old Testament. Don't look at your Bibles and go, you know, I'm only really into the New Testament. The Old Testament was given unto us to frame the code of conduct, God's moral code. And Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me so that we could all recognize that when we put ourselves up to the standard of God's laws... We will realize our desperate need for a Savior because we can't live up to them. Try as much as we might. Now, therefore, then coming to Jesus in relationship with Him and He saves us, now we want to obey the laws of God, not because they make us more righteous, but because they honor the Lord as we give obedience to His commands to honor Him through holy living. See, and the Pharisees had gotten the cart before the horse. They were like, no, 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 if we just obey all these rules, then we'll find favor with God. No, the truth is, you cannot find favor with God except through a relationship with the Messiah, and only then will you be saved. Now you can obey my laws to a better degree than otherwise you could by simply trying to fulfill a system of rules and regulations. That's why Jesus is upset with them, because the very law was intended to show them Jesus. And here Jesus is standing right in front of them, and they don't see him. They don't accept him. They don't recognize him. That's why he's calling them hypocrites and sons of hell. He says in verse 16, read on, Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. And in fact, the word fools there in the Greek is the word moros. We get our English word moron. Check it out. Jesus is saying, you blind guides and you blind morons. He's fired up. I'm liking this chapter, yeah, because at least I'm not there, you know what I'm saying? I'd be a part of this group probably. But we have the perspective of standing back and watching them just give a good tongue lashing to other people. So anyhow, he says, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. 
Now, here's the context. In this day, the religious leaders had this elaborate system of how to be able to make promises that you didn't have to keep. You know how when you, you shouldn't do this, but maybe as kids, you make a promise and you got your fingers crossed behind your back, kind of your way out of the promise. And the Pharisees had this elaborate way of making certain promises that, that allowed you to break it. So one of the things they would say is, you can go ahead and swear by the temple as long as you don't swear by the gold of the temple. If you say, I swear by the temple, you don't have to fulfill your promise because it's not as important as the gold of the temple. And likewise, they would say, if you swear by the, the gifts that are brought to the temple, that's more binding than if you just swear by the altar. What's an altar? And Jesus flips it. He says, listen, you're more concerned about the gold and the gifts then you are the temple and the altar which represent God. So they're elevating the material above the spiritual. They're putting gifts and they're putting gold as more sacred than God who was the one who dwells within the temple. And so he's, Jesus is coming against their, the, the way that they make these false promises and break them and have these, uh, these little elaborate ways of making these promises that they can uh, just violate. He goes on here in verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Now he talks here about tithing. Uh, to give a tenth, another way of saying that is to tithe. The Bible talks about giving tenth, giving a tithe. And the Bible speaks about giving a tenth unto the Lord. And you see this through the Bible. The, the idea of tithing is not just an Old Testament thing. In fact, when you look at what Jesus says here, he makes it a New Testament principle as well. Not that we're under the mandate of the law as if tithing should be some uh, just command obligation. But, however, Jesus says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What is he doing? He's saying, look, the heart is more important. The issue of justice, mercy, and faithfulness is more important than just the duty of giving a tenth. The Pharisees prided themselves, and we've done the tenth. We've counted out. We've got ten seeds here of mint. We've counted out one for us, one for God, and nine for us. And then we take the dill and we do the same thing. Uh, One for God and nine for us. And they would do a tenth very meticulously, very legalistically. But Jesus says, where's your heart in all of this? Because you've neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, even as it comes to the issue of tithing, Jesus doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He says, no, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter, or the latter without neglecting the former, rather. What he's saying is it's still good to give a tenth to God, but you better do it only because your heart is inclined to worship the Lord, not out of obligation, but out of worship, because you want to, because you desire to give a tenth. And, and so, you know, when, when we teach through the Bible, the idea, the principle of the tithe um, is, is not just this antiquated Old Testament thing. Uh, Jesus uh, makes this statement here in Matthew 23 uh, that attaches value still to the principle of tithing, though it should be a heart issue where you do it not out of compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, but you do it as a, as a matter of worship unto the Lord as the Lord guides and as the Lord provides. 
And sometimes people will say to me, you know, well, the tenth, I don't believe in the tenth. I don't believe in giving the tithe. You know, the tenth is just, that's so legalistic. And I, okay, great. Give 15, 20%, whatever the Lord lays in your heart. Praise God. But anyway, that's the idea behind it. It's the principle of a heart motivation. And Jesus stresses here justice, mercy, faithfulness. They've neglected that part. They're not doing that part. They're parsing out a tenth, but their heart's not right. He says in verse 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. What does that mean? Well, see, in the Levitical law, it was against the law to eat an animal without first draining its blood. Now, when you suck in a gnat on a hot summer day, and we've all done it at some point, you know, you're out talking, you know, you suck in a gnat. And it goes down your throat. What are you supposed to do? Well, here's what the Pharisees would do when they realized, uh-oh, I just sucked down a gnat and I just ate something without draining its blood. Like, like how could you drain the blood of a gnat, you know, anyway? How legalistic is this? So here's what they would start to do. They'd start to gag themselves to cough it up. They'd be like, ah! They'd be standing on the street corners. you see some Pharisees going, ah! Like when you go in to get your coffee at 7-Eleven in the morning. There they are, everybody's out front. Ah! Ah! It's disgusting. I don't know why they do that at my 7-Eleven here in town, but that's what they're doing. There's a bunch of guys out front going, hey, how's it going? Drinking coffee. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) So enjoyable to come into the store with all of this. I mean, watch my step. But this is what these guys were doing because they were so concerned about violating the law of God. We better (laughs) cough up the gnats. And Jesus is saying, you know what's so ridiculous? You're straining out the smallest little insect but you're swallowing more things that are unclean because a camel was an unclean animal. A camel ruminates, it it chews the cud, but it doesn't have a completely split hoof and it had to have both in order for it to be kosher according to the law. And so Jesus is simply saying this, look, you're so concerned about the little, most minute aspects of the law and the details of it while at the same time you are living your lives in such a way that you are doing a greater damage to yourself by all these other corrupt ways that you're living. It's like swallowing a camel. He says, verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He's talking about their hearts. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. Here's the same theme. But on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, during especially the Passover feast, when the city of Jerusalem would swell with hundreds of thousands of worshipers who would come to the city of Jerusalem, what they would often do is they would paint the tombs, the tombstones, so that people wouldn't accidentally, without noticing, step on or touch a tomb, because then you'd be unclean. So they would go around and they would paint the, the, the cemeteries, they would paint the tombstones, so nobody could accidentally become defiled. And Jesus is saying, look, you're just like a, a, a cup that you've washed on the outside, but on the inside it's still dirty. You're just like whitewashed tombs. On the outside you look really nice, but on the inside you're full of evil and wickedness. It's not the external that God is concerned about. It's the heart. It's the heart. You look good on the outside, but on the inside 
You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He says in verse 29, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. That last part there is a reference to himself. They're going around priding themselves, saying, you know, our forefathers killed the prophets, not us. Jesus says, oh, you just admitted that you're descendants of murderers. So why don't you just fill up the full measure of murder? Because he knows that in due time they're going to do the same thing to himself, to him, to Jesus, as they did to the prophets before him. Just as your forefathers killed the prophets, you're you're going to end up doing the same thing to me. Go ahead, fill up the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, which is a traditional term that means you belong to the family of the devil. That's what he's saying here. This is strong stuff. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. He says to them, the sum total of the Old Testament prophets, beginning with Abel, Cain and Abel, When Abel was murdered, the first murder recorded in human history. From the time of Abel to the time of the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the blood of the prophets is on you, this generation that he's speaking to. And and this is a particular specific context because he says, upon you will come this uh, tragedy. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. And boy, does it. Because in 70 A.D., the temple is going to be destroyed as the Romans ransack Jerusalem under Titus Vespasian. And Josephus, the first century historian, records that 1.1 million people will die in the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. This is why Jesus weeps. Because in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And by the way, in the margin of your Bible, you can just write Luke 19.41. Because in Luke 19.41, Luke tells us that when Jesus says this, what we're about to read, he weeps over Jerusalem. There are two times in the Bible that Jesus weeps. One is at the tomb of Lazarus, and one is at this scene right here. At the tomb of Lazarus, it's a Greek word that means he shed a tear. But in Luke 19.41, when Luke describes this scene we're about to read, it is a Greek word that means he cried with loud wailing and sobbing. Because notice the heart of the Lord is for people. Yes, he rebukes the religious leaders of of his day for their unbelief and their hypocrisy and their pride and their legalism, but his heart still breaks over them. Just like his heart breaks over every hypocritical person, every proud person, and every legalistic person, every sinner, because Jesus dies for us all on the cross. Not a select few, for all. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And his heart is breaking and grieving over those who don't believe and receive and accept who he is. So he says here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Notice that God gives human beings a free will and he will not violate our will. He will grieve over our will when we do not exercise it towards him to choose him, but they would not. They willed not to accept him and to believe him many in his day. So Jesus says, look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's a reference to Zechariah the prophet, because in that day, Zechariah says in chapter 12 and chapter 14, Zechariah says that in that day when Jesus returns and he comes to the Mount of Olives, the Lord says through Zechariah, I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication upon the house of David. And in that day, they will see the Lord, the one that they have pierced, and they will weep bitterly as one weeps for an only child. And Zechariah says that they will ask, the Jews will ask Jesus in that day when they see him, because Jesus will return bearing the marks of his crucifixion still in his glorified body. And they will ask him, where did you receive these marks? Zechariah says that the Lord will answer, I received these marks at the house of my friends. But then their hearts will turn. And Zechariah talks about how in that day, many will believe and many will put their faith and trust in the Lord. He says in Zechariah 13, 1, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And further down at the end of Zechariah 13, He says, I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. But Jesus reminds them here that, look, there's going to be hardship and calamity that will come upon this city. In fact, really the first two verses of chapter 24, I don't don't think that the uh, chapter division is in the best place. So if you'll just look at the first two verses and then we'll close. But if chapter 24, first two verses, he says this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And when you go to Israel today, this is that very picture that was a fulfillment of this verse right here. Because this is taken in the old city of Jerusalem. And the wall to the right is the retaining wall that goes up on the Temple Mount, where at one time the temple of God stood until 70 AD. When the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem and they completely uh, took and tore the temple of God apart, one stone, one boulder at a time, And they cast the stones of the wall and of the temple down to the street below. And over a period of of archaeological digs, this road that you're looking at goes back to the time of Jesus. This is first century. This is the time of Jesus. And that pile of rubble is intentionally left there by Israelis as a reminder of the time of destruction in the year 70 A.D. And it was a fulfillment of Jesus' own words here. Not one stone will be left upon another. That because of their disbelief, because of their pride, because of their arrogance, 
Because they did not accept and believe that Jesus was the Christ, there would be judgment that would come to the city of Jerusalem. And the temple would be destroyed and it would be laid waste. And there is no temple there today. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know